Hi, this is a podcast for the best bits of the Breakfasters. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Triple R. Emerging from LA's punk scene, the Go-Go's became the first all-female band to play their own instruments, write their own songs, and achieve massive success as the best-selling ever all-female band with their 1981 debut album, spending six weeks at number one. The history-making group is the subject of a new documentary, making its Australian premiere at MIFF. And to tell us about it, we're joined by producer, editor, and director of the Go-Go's, Alison Elwood. Alison, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me. Hello. Oh, thanks for being here. Um, what attracted you to the Go-Go's as a focus of your latest film? Well, I was always a Go-Go's fan um, way back in the day, but they actually approached me to make this film. And what was great for me is that I had no idea about their punk roots. I was never really much of a punk fan, to be honest with you, but it's opened my eyes and ears to a whole new genre of music, which has been really great. Yeah. Uh, What sort of archival footage and photographs did you come across and what was that process like? Well, we have tons of archival footage and and photographs, much of which is actually in the film. Um, Gina, thankfully, is a photographer and photographed things all through throughout their history so we have very intimate portraits from her not from an outsider but inside in the moment taking lots and lots of photographs so that was a huge base for us to start from and then a lot of it was you know our researchers and producers digging deep and finding amazing stuff some of which had never been seen before so there was a, there was a lot of stuff that we included in the film mm. um can you take us through uh some of the members and some of the dynamics and issues and tensions that uh, that come out in the film? Well, I mean, I, I believe artists are generally very volatile. And when you combine, especially in a rock band, when you get lots of people together, the volatility, you know, exponentially raises, rises. And they, they were no different in that respect. But there is a tremendously strong sisterhood that these gals um, feel to this day, and certainly back then, it was their motivating force to keep them going in a very male-dominated industry and to push through the boundaries. So, you know, of course, there's tensions, and as they, you know, it's a sort of a classic rise and fall rock story. Um, you know, their own their own success becomes their their own enemy at a certain point. Um, is it, does that answer the question? <laughs> <laughs> how, yeah. how much um, of a main ingredient of their success do you think comes down to their um, – there's a sisterhood, but there's also their, their manager, their original manager, Ginger, who kind of saw that sisterhood and familyness and kind of made that happen? Yes, absolutely. I mean, she was drawn to the band for that very reason in the first place. And she, you know, was sort of the mother hen, but also close enough in age to them that she was, you know, they called her the sixth go-go. She was very much a part of that sisterhood. And she, you know, pawned everything she owned, sold things to get them on that first trip to England where they got exposure, but not so much exposure as they got tight as a band. Yeah, I mean, that first tour... Like, I, yeah, I found that in, in, incredible. Like, they kind of go off thinking, oh, this is great. We're going to tour with, with the, the specials and the madness and this is what can go wrong. And then they're just, you know, in front of these audiences that just despise them 
and then right. they just get up again and again each night. And I just, I thought, I'm like, oh, this is, you know, how you just cutting your teeth like that is must have been incredible. Yeah, I mean, the tenacity that they had to get through that and, and not be defeated by it, not give up, but actually to say, you know, we're going to be stronger. We're going to prove to these guys that we can do this. Mm. What What do you think the benefit, uh, what is the benefit of hindsight now? Like what, what light is shed decades later from that uh, tumultuous early period? For them as, as, as a band, you mean? Yeah. I, mean, I think that the film has provided a lot of healing for them. When we premiered at Sundance, they had each individually seen the film prior to that but it was the first time they saw it in a big audience that was incredibly receptive to the film. And I think that being cheered on in that way, that they realized that they had achieved something quite extraordinary as these five women that had come together, not really knowing what they were doing initially, but, but eventually, you know, DIY, figure it out and, and bust through the ceiling. And I think that it was extraordinarily healing in any of the, 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 any of the hard feelings that any of them had been holding on to for all the nearly 40 years kind of let go. And there's been a release that they have all felt and they've all talked to me. I mean, you know, there were tears at Sundance about how relieving that all was. Mm. How, uh, interviewing a band, how do you keep a subject at ease? I know you're invited, but was, is there any, um, and this isn't your first rodeo, you've done music documentaries in the past. What what process do you go through to uh, to get to enable you to paint the full story? I mean, it, first of all, you got to research and know what you're talking about and have good questions so they don't roll their eyes at you. That's <laughs> the key. But the main thing is that, you know, I had sort of been developing. It took me a long time to convince them to do this. Even though they approached me, it took about another year to get them to actually agree to do it. They were a little gun shy because of the behind the, the music thing. Um but really, you know, it's about keeping it conversational and 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 honest and and you know not like checking off questions on a list, but really conversational. And that's you know something I learned many many years ago as an interview technique. And you know we were friendly at that point. I think now we're really good friends. But but you know there was a warmth and a trust and an understanding. And that was one of the first things I said to them: Look, you guys have to trust me. But I also have to trust you because if you're not honest with me, we're not going to tell an honest film. Mm. Um, can you uh, tell us a bit about your story? You're currently in Massachusetts. You're from Melbourne. You've done documentaries on the the Eagles and the LA musical hotbed uh, Laurel Canyon. What? How did you become? How did you find this niche? Um, I mean, my, my taste is super eclectic and I have fallen into some music stuff for sure. I just love popular culture things. I, I find it fascinating. But, you know, my, my films are pretty eclectic in what I've done. They range from politics to music to whatever. Um, you know, ever since I was five years old, I was obsessed with National Geographic magazine and wanted to be a photojournalist. And my dad bought me a camera when I was seven, got me a darkroom when I was 10, and that I've been obsessed with telling stories and photographing. And so I think becoming a documentary filmmaker was sort of a natural progression. Mm-hmm. And uh, with your music documentary um, component of your past, are there, any, are there any patterns that you've picked up on that bands go through that you can, as an outside observer, kind of see a fix to them or see an, a, a problem that keeps recurring that maybe doesn't have to? Yeah, 
I mean, the obvious one is, you know, ultimately all these bands come that 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 kind of implode at their height. It be, it becomes about money and publishing and you know, there are a few bands, U2 being one of them, that from the get-go said we just split everything evenly so we avoid those problems altogether. But that's, you know, there 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 are arguments for songwriters, you know, making more money because there is extra work in that. So it's a tricky thing. That's certainly one thing that could happen. But, you know, whenever there's artists in general are volatile, and when you combine many of them together, it, it exponentially, you know, raises that level of volatility. And I think that that's just sort of a normal part of the process. It's the, yeah. it's the nature, too. Yeah. Watching the documentary, it was like, by the end, it was like, I was amazed that they stayed together for as long as they did, you know. There was substance abuse that was undiagnosed by Paula. There was two of them that had a relationship and they broke up, but the band still stayed together. It was, you know, it was it was quite incredible. Why do you think, um, like, there hasn't been anything like them? There hasn't been another band that's had the same success since. Well, there have been bands that have had success, obviously, but, you know, all all women writing their own songs, playing their own instruments. I mean, it, frankly, I don't know why. It's crazy. And it's mm-hmm. also crazy why they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And in October, we were, I was completely prepared to pull those four comments about that out of the film because we were sure they'd be inducted in 2020. So hopefully 2021 is their year. Mm. Yes. Do you reckon this documentary might be a bit of a push? I hope so. <laughs> I think it would have been a push without us even mentioning it, honestly, yeah. but um, we, we were able to have a little bit of fun. Because, I mean, come on, after all these years, I think they're entitled to that, make yeah. a few sites at that. <laughs> I can't see how, like, they fulfil every quarter of being a rock star, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, the Australian premiere of the Go-Go's documentary screens online at MIF. Uh, for bookings, head to 2020.mif.com.au. And we've been speaking with director Alison Elwood. Thanks so much, Alison. Thank you so much for having me. Triple R. Uh, Sarah, you had the day off yesterday, and um, you did mention this morning why you had some some glucose test or something. Anyway, um, oh, oh yeah, just trying to play. Everyone go back to six fifteen and listen to my hell day. Anyway. Yeah, uh, and also um, you, there was, you had a day off last week as well, and 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 you were disappointed that I'd written the play. Um, last week's play was um, who. Uh, goes paragliding in a pandemic, um, and Shorty played the role of Gary, I believe. It was Justin and Gary. And um, uh, anyway, you were disappointed that you missed out on doing a play. So I thought, um, I got up this morning and I've written another play, um, and this one is called the real reason Sarah had the day off yesterday. <laughs> so um, you will be, essentially, Sarah, you'll be playing yourself. Oh, um, my favourite role to play. Yeah, like pretty much. It's like, you know, there is a there's a subtle difference. Anyway, um, so <laughs> really um, it's uh, your, you're actually Agent Taylor. Um and your code name is Sarah Smith. Um, and this is just a bit of a character background for you. Um, actually, I'll get to yours 
next. First, we'll do Daniel. Daniel, you'll be playing Agent Fraser. Okay. Um, and Fraser is the middleman between the boss and Agent Taylor. All right. Uh, takes his job very seriously, which is good because he is actually a spy. Yeah. Um, and if he didn't, he'd be a crap spy and probably dead. Um, he loves his wife and two daughters. They think he works. He works in sales. Um, his favorite movie is True Lies. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> When he is home, he loves cooking and sitting in a large leather wing back chair that overlooks the garden. Uh, and um, Sarah, like I said, you are Agent Taylor, one of ASIO's finest. At times is, is reckless, uh, which infuriates Agent Fraser, but she always gets the job done. Um, what is reckless to some is calculated to others. As in Agent Fraser that thinks that sometimes Agent Taylor doesn't think about what she's doing is just reacting to a moment, but really she knows exactly what she is doing because she is one of ASIO's finest. Um, at home, she likes to play records to her greyhound Ralph and tend to the garden. Um, her partner Andrew thinks she works in radio. Um, this is actually true. Being a spy is just her side hustle. Um, so the scene is set. In a nondescript location, a fluorescent lit room with bare walls and no windows, Agent Fraser sits at a desk watching one of his five computer monitors. Is this a control room? Yes, but what is being controlled? Agent Taylor walks in the room and hands Agent Fraser a coffee. Over to you. Have you changed your code name? Yes, it's like a password. You should change it on a regular basis. Uh, unless you have the perfect code name, Sarah Smith. It's like a 10-year-old came up with it. It's so bad, it's perfect. It's not, and you should change it. <laughs> I'm not going to. What have you changed yours to? Turkish Delight. Oh, no thanks. Uh, that's it. What's it? My code name. Yeah, what is it? Uh, Turkish Delight. What? Uh, Turkish Delight is my code name. No. Well, what do you mean, no? You're not Turkish? <laughs> Hardly matters. <laughs> And you're a drag queen? What? I'd accept Turkish Delight if you're a Turkish drag queen, but only just. As a code name, it is the worst. I like Turkish Delight. Not many people do. It's something that makes me unique. No. There are lots of people that like Turkish Delight, and you all think you're the only ones in the world that like Turkish Delight, and that makes you special. You're the type of person that wears odd socks, but they're not really odd socks. They're the same brand, but with three different designs that you got from a pack. You just wear two of those socks and go, yeah, I'm crazy. Look like that. Look at me and my odd socks. Hey, pass me that box of celebration so I can get the Turkish Delight nobody wants. But when you get the box, you realise there are no Turkish Delight left because lots of people like them. Uh, what about odd sock then? Wasn't there an odd sock in one of the Bond films? No, there was an odd job. He was the henchman to the villain Goldfinger. Goldfinger? Jez and I thought Turkish Delight was bad. You do remember the name of the Bond girl in that film? Uh, yes, but I'm not going to say it. No, that's a shame because I've decided that, that it is going to be my new code name. Well, have fun with that, Ms Galore. I'm off to get my blood test. And scene. That is very good. And sorry, that was G's, not Jez, but that was yeah, wonderful. Yeah, that's all right. That's that... all right. Sorry about my this, um, my grammar when I'm writing. I, you know, it just flows out of me in the morning. So I was just, you know, put put it all on paper and send it off to you. Jez, that Turkish delight rant is like the rant that I never knew I needed to have. <laughs> like I've never felt so closely understood as reading that. That's extraordinary. Yeah, I thought I thought you could relate to that. A lot of people think they're the only ones in the world that like that 
at like Turkish Delight, but man, you're not a minority. Everybody, there's lots of people who like Turkish Delight. I think Agent Taylor needs more respect, personally. But that's <laughs> yeah, forward. a bit of a pushover agent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but she's one of ASIO's finest. So, um, so uh, anyway, I'm very happy if you've got like a problem. Uh, you want any questions answered in life um feel free to you know send in a question and i might be able to answer it in the form of writing a play so you can um get on the socials or send us a text on zero four double six nine eight one zero two seven triple r i'm hungry I want something to eat, something with a crunch and very sweet. It's time to get culinary on a Wednesday with Michael Harden for Food Interlude. Morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you all? Tremendous. What's news? Well, you know, tremendous as well, but... um... Yeah, it's just so much fun. Um, but I just thought um, we're going to chat. I thought I'd talk a little bit about Dim Sims. But first, I just wanted to say that, you know, probably need to flag the fact that Cam Smith, who uh, obviously, as you guys all know, has the um, Eat It show on um, Sundays, um, was made a legend at the uh, Melbourne Food and Wine Festival um, Legends Awards this year So um, for his um, services to communication. So I just wanted to say congratulations to him because he is a bloody legend because it was like, you know, he's been doing that for 33 years. Mm. Three years. He's been in there Sunday at noon. So it's sort of like, so I just wanted to uh, flag that and go. Uh, does, does he get a um, lifetime supply of food and wine now? I would hope so, but, um, you know, it's sort of like, but I think Cam probably has that anyway because people love to um, wine and dine him and listen to the uh, the golden tonsils. It does. <laughs> I used to do, um, for one year I did the show after Eat It. Yeah. Um, and it was great because if, yeah, there was a few times where we'd have a bottle of bubbles or something that was left over from, from Eat It that Cam was like, we don't need this anymore. Yeah, and surprisingly a number of um, bartenders and cocktail makers that he has on his show. Yes. Um, You know, that it's sort of like, oh, here's some martinis that we need to drink right now, all in (laughs) your course. And with with the guts ripped out of everything, uh, all normality and all routine and with so much up in the air, to have Cam's voice on a Sunday and midday is uh, is – inordinately therapeutic it certainly is it's sort of like you know some things aren't going to change yeah yeah congratulations cam yeah yeah so um so i thought and moving on from cam i don't know how we segue from cam to do him <laughs> try um but i just thought i was sort of thinking about um you know the fact that you know everybody's laying the boot into victoria at the moment and we needed something that we you know could feel proud about and um so i thought well the dim sim is a melbourne invention and so that's something that we should be uh, very, very proud of I think, because it is um, quite a unique little culinary um, moment, um, you know, particularly in the terms of, you know, the, the great tradition of Aussie Chinese food. So um, the first the first mention of the dim sim in, in um, Victoria was in the Argus newspaper in 1928, but I think that was probably more in terms of sort of traditional Chinese dumplings, but, but they were kind of on the radar then, which was pretty unusual for Australia at that time. Time given that uh, people didn't really like fancy foreign food or indeed fancy foreigners. 
So, um, you know, with, because the white Australia policy was still in there, but it was sort of like interesting to know that in, in the 1930s, the white Australia policy was given an exemption and that was an exemption to chefs. So a lot of Chinese people were able to bring their families over under this chef thing. And, you know, that was why there was sort of a boon in um, Chinese restaurants and Chinese cooking around that time, because people, that was one of the ways that they could make money once they migrated here. And um, and so they after that, it was they started like looking people like there was a guy called William Cheng Wing Young, which he had a um, he had a restaurant called Wing Lee in Melbourne. And he was actually the father of Elizabeth Chong, who was one of the first um, Australian celebrity chefs. And, yeah. um, and so he noticed that there was the people who come, the Australian people, the wider Anglo-Australian people coming into his restaurant were really into the shumai dumplings, which were the sort of prawn and pork ones. And he decided that it would be a sort of a good thing to be able to um, make those more Australian and kind of sell them. Like he saw them as a kind of, he was like, wow, we could do this as a snack, like a pie at the footy and stuff. And so he made them bigger and um, like than they normally were and put them in a wonton casing, which was much sturdier than before and steamed them. And he would sell them around the place um, to uh, outside footy games and things like that. So it was like, you know, but he took and they took the prawns out of it. It was more to do with pork and cabbage. And they had some some onion and celery and water chestnuts and things, a little bit of white pepper and soy with the flavorings. Mm-hmm. And um, they sort of they put them outside um, at the footy and sort of had little stalls with steamed dim sims there. And um, and then also there was another guy called Ken Cheng who was behind. He was the originator of South Melbourne market dim sims, oh. which started in 1949. Oh, my God. And, yeah, and he used to take them to Caulfield Racecourse. And um, and would sell them it to the to the people of Caulfield Racecourse, and it was all about they were sort of looking at like how do we adapt this food so that it is sturdy and easy to hold in one hand while you're kind of like you know cheering your horse on or cheering your footy team on. So they this is how they originated, and the the South Melbourne ones became very popular because they were twice as big as the regular dim sim and they were sort of a round shape and they were quite sturdy. So, um, and then, and but they were all steamed up until there was never no, no such ah. thing dim sim until the 1950s. And this is, I think, like a, a, a great triumph of Australian multicultural success is that, <laughs> um, is that uh, Elizabeth Chong's brother, like her, by this time, their their father William Chen, um, he was um, he was, had a factory and he was employing Chinese people and they were making the wrappers and they were like doing bulk versions of dim sim, and he was so he was delivering them around to all these Chinese restaurants and his son Tom was delivering them around and he had a, a delivery and he was he dropped them into a friend of his who was a Greek guy who had a fish and chip shop and he was supposed to be going to deliver these um, dim sim to a Chinese restaurant but he dropped in to see his mate and his his mate told him, um, talked him into going fishing with him. And so they had this box of dim sims left over that he didn't do anything with. And they were going, he was like, you should try these to his Greek friend. And um, his Greek friend was like, well, you know, but they were like, they had no steam or anything. And so they said, oh, let's just chuck them in the deep fryer and see what happens. Oh, that's so cool. And a deep fried lead didn't form. So, you know, it's like this wow. kind of history on that, uh, on that, that, um, piece of piece of food like they've you've got some Greeks and you've got some Chinese and you know a little bit of Aussie fishing and you know the whole thing getting together. Brilliant. Has anything failed after putting it in the deep fryer though? I doubt it. I reckon you could <laughs> probably eat a, a bong 
<laughs> and I'm hungry enough. It's <laughs> so are you what are you guys? Are you sort of are you steamed or fried? Oh, I love it. Oh, I love a fried uh, when um I was saying to the guys, I don't think I've mentioned this on air before, but when I was young, my dad we went to uh, a regatta at a dam in regional Victoria and it was like build your own boat regatta and yeah. my dad won twenty kilos of um frozen dim sims and uh he steamed them for a year mm-hmm. like we just steamed our house is smelled with steamed dim sims and so i because we didn't have a deep fryer i didn't know how to fry them they were just those kind of you know packet packet ones yeah. that you get yeah. and i think that after a year of um steamed dim sims i moved squarely to the, the fried dim sim mm. uh, and now i love a fried dimmy like so much like I, I, I now you're talking about it i want to go and buy a fried dimmy oh, absolutely you know it's sort of like and that they were there's there was like such a snob value around them for a while and there still is people sort of look down their nose a little bit it's like it's not really authentic and you know we've got better chinese food now and which is which is, we have more authentic chinese food but this is an authentic Aussie Chinese, mm. you know, and I think there's a legitimate Aussie Chinese um, cuisine. I, I I never know what's going to come out of my mouth when I'm asked steamed or fried. I just don't. I always surprise myself. And I feel yeah. like when I do ask for fried, it's like, well, I've given up for the day. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's sort of fried. You kind of know that you are hungover. <laughs> No, I always eat them for fun. When I was a kid too, I remember we were going to the fish and chip shop for years and my brother would always get fried dimmies. He didn't like fish. Like he didn't like the the, the fried fish. And then he asked us what a dim sim looked looked like before it was killed. And I realised that his whole life he'd thought that the dim sim was a little fish. And that he'd actually been eating a little fish, uh, which I love. Anyway. You know, I've, I've actually never seen a dim sim in the wild. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's. Uh, is there a ceiling to how good a dim sim can be, or have you had incredibly gourmet dim sims in your life, Michael? I, I think the great thing about the dim sim is that, it, like you know, it, you. It resists being turned gourmet because the moment that you turn it gourmet, it goes back to being a good Chinese dumpling. Yes. So there's already a refined version of it. So you can't have somebody going, wow, look at me, I'm I'm being ironic and I'm going to give you a, you know, designer lamington. You know, it's sort of like it's a dim sim (laughs) or otherwise it's a Chinese dumpling. So it kind of resists. It's sort of this egalitarian food stuff that resists people turning it into something. Has it it been adopted by other other countries as the dim sim that we we know it from the fish and chip shop not really it's sort of there's something a little similar in the philippines that that they do they sort of they they have um got a larger kind of fried shumai and it's sort of like it has been put but we've we actually exported dim sims to the rest of the world there was like you know again with the multicultural thing the biggest manufacturer of dim sims in australia is a greek family and um, they've been doing it since the 1960s marathon wow. foods and they exported they've, they've been exporting dim sims to the uk and to get it japan I just, I'm not quite sure. I just can't, can't get my head around the Japanese that you think of sort of like everything sort of quite delicate and refined. And then, you know, this great bomb of pork meat and pastry lands in front of you with a, with a kind of a, with a rattle. I can't quite see it, but uh, yeah, but no, it's sort of, it's pretty much an Australian thing. Mm. And, and a just, thing, so we can stand up and be proud in the midst of the, the crisis. And yep. just finally, where do you stand on um, sitting a dim sim in a shallow pool of water and microwaving it? That's, oh. I'm not you know, eating. 
That's I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> Michael Harden resigns from Breakfast. <laughs> Thanks very much, Michael. Talking okay, soon. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. I don't know if it's been happening in, in your neighbourhood, but um, there's some um, kids here that have, you know, obviously, um, you know, got a bit more time at home um, and they've been um, just kind of been a bit inventive with their play um, and they've been, because there's a reserve just out here and it kind of, got, there's, this is like it goes on and on and on, and there's some kids that had um, built some uh, like bike jumps, like dirt jumps. Oh, um, yeah, and it's been really cool, and it's been Lloyd can't stand them, but um, it's just been cool. These kids come out on their BMXs, and it's just fun watching. You know, siblings kind of. You see, like this one. There's an older brother going, "Come on, you can do it." You know, just ride, and I'll tell you when to when to jump and and kind of. And you, as you you know, when we go take the dogs for a walk, you can see, like it just been built up every day, and like there's a really big one further up, and I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Just reminds me of when, like when we were kids, and there was like a paddock behind our place that all the local kids would kind of go and hang out there and um, and that was, yeah, we just made these huge jumps and stuff. And there was one day where we'd, we'd made these, um, everyone, like all the kids would line up and then someone would be there to like mark in the dirt how far you jumped and to see, you know, who was the best person. And, and then when it was my turn, like I just, how many you just feel you just feel in the zone in the moment. And I was like, this is the perfect run up. Like the, I had the perfect speed. And then when I launched, I was just like, yeah, I've nailed this. I've nailed it. And then when I landed, I was like heaps in front of everyone else. And I remember the person that was like marking, it was like this older kid who I was terrified by because just because they were older and cooler and stuff. And he's just given me the nod. He just goes, oh, the nod. Yeah, he goes, yeah, that was, that was pretty good. And I acted all cool and, you know, just tore off like a BMX bandit. Um, <laughs> my sister, though, has um, alerted me to, um, in her neighbourhood, there was kids that had been um, uh, building a, a ramp. And it's just made of, like, um, you know, bits and pieces like um, that they've found, like bits of wood and doors and bricks and stuff. Um, and she said that she's been, like, the local kids have been building this ramp for their bikes in a local park. Um, she said they've been, you know, working on it each day. But it looks like someone tried to remove it, um, but it's back and it's been rebuilt. But then also there was a note um, that someone had posted up nearby just saying, um, sorry they took away your jump, kids. This can happen when you grow up. You forget what it's like to be a kid and have fun and to be creative. Keep being a kid as long as you can. Bob, age 77. Oh, uh, my God. I know. <laughs> so I'm going to cry. I know. It's just like, oh, shout out to Bob. Like it's, you know, imagine that. Oh, just that's so sweet. Isn't it? <laughs> just like... Um, so I think, you know, it's just nice to know that there's there's bobs in the world and, yeah. you know, 
And it's, yeah, we should keep on, you know, being a kid and just doing our thing and being creative and having fun and and that's, you know, and letting people do that as well, you know. Yeah, it's hard not to get jealous of the kids uh, with their, you know, their there's heaps of bikes around where I am, kids kids everywhere sort of hanging out at a distance, but also they don't have to wear masks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So I'm like, never, that is so never, true. <laughs> never been more nostalgic for childhood. I've got to yeah. say that I think people are coming around to it because I, when when the lockdown first happened the first time around, lots of kids were writing signs and writing on concrete around our area, like smile and stuff. But I noticed mm. people cleaning them up immediately, like, you know, watering yeah. them down the next day. But now no one is. Like, I think everyone needs kids writing in chalk on the pavement to get yeah. through the second lockdown. And so there's heaps of just messages all over our neighbourhood and little signs in windows and everyone's just letting it go, which I love, like a whole lot of bobs everywhere. Yeah, mm. good. we love bobs. Yeah, yeah. If, you're on the, if you're on the fence about being a bob, just be a bob. <laughs> yeah. Just I write a letter. What would Bob do? That's what we need to ask ourselves every day. We walk down the street, we see something cool and we want to take it down. What would Bob do? Bob would leave it Triple R. Jez has the morning off, so it's Sarah and Daniel with you. And we uh, discovered, coincidentally, which is pretty rare, I think, um, in these days where everybody's watching all sorts of different things and consuming all sorts of media, that we were watching the uh, Ron Howard's Pavarotti documentary at the exact same time. I know. how. What is that all about? I um, We were talking off air the other day and I was like, oh, I'm obsessed with Pavarotti now. And then you're like, yeah, I'm watching the show too. So, yeah. Uh, but it's it's bizarre, isn't it? Like I I think I saw people tweeting about it, uh, and then and then thought, oh, I've got a Pavarotti. Why not? You know, what else have we got to do right now? Like, why not dig into Pavarotti? Hadn't thought about him in a while, and I, it's just like now I cannot stop thinking about him. Like it's just <laughs> so why and and. I think because it took me back to my childhood, which was consumed by Pavarotti for no good reason. Like, It's not like my parents listened to Pavarotti much in the house. But I think I forgot he was like a superstar Mm. of our generation. There was like Madonna and Pavarotti. And and I didn't know any other opera singers. So I think as a kid you were just fascinated by him and the three tenors. And then he was at the the Barcelona Olympics, I think. Mm. And, um, and, And he's just... I, but I had no idea what he was like as a person. In my mind, perhaps he was like a tyrant or something, uh, just because you think opera singer, diva. Diva, and yeah. He's like this big, beaming, jolly, joyful human being who I just want to hang out with and he loves eating pasta and he talks about food a lot. Yeah. And um, I just, yeah, I'm just so, and, and one of my favourite things that I found out really early on in the doco, and I don't know why, but it felt like it drew me to it, was how nervous he gets, he'd get before he went on stage, even mm. though he's, you know, the greatest tenor in the world. And the, every time he'd walk on stage before uh, – a performance, he'd say with this really big smile, okay, we go to die. And <laughs> I mean, how perfect is that? Like every time yeah. I do anything, every time I perform or walk on stage anywhere, in my head I go, okay, Sarah, we go to die. <laughs> and Pavarotti, he was there first. It's, so yeah, it's, and he, and he carries around the handkerchief in his hand or he performed with it because just 
for something to do with his hands because he was nervous about what to do with his hands as well. Um, And and is there a a music documentary that Bono isn't in? That's my question. When I saw Bono on my fairies, (laughs) I can get his noggy. Also, the baby, weirdly, when I was watching it, the baby – there's these scenes where he's performing with Joan Sutherland and, like, he got two of the greatest opera singers of all time. And I think the baby started doing somersaults when they were hitting the... <laughs> and I was like, wow, she... Baby has not responded to any music so far, but... Um, I've already done a trick. Luciani did it. Um, it's three decades almost to the date uh, in July, the, the three tenors. It was their first performance, the 30th anniversary. Oh, but, wow. Mm, in, in Rome, and there was a, it's covered in the in the documentary. And there was one thing that annoyed me a little bit is that they performed Ness and Dorma as an encore, but uh, Placido Domingo is making out that it was just off the cuff, like oh we run out of music, and shall we sing Ness and Dorma? Anyway, so I call bullshit on that. And it's, and there's a few things. I was also I was watching a myth film, which and I've seen tons of myth films, but I was watching a film called uh, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, right? So I'm reading about it and it says, as regulars gather at an off-strip Las Vegas bar at the uh, the Roaring Twenties for one last hurrah before it shuts up shot for good, filmmakers Bill and Turner Ross were there to capture the bittersweet memories and shared camaraderie over a night of drinking to commiserate and celebrate. It's the eve of the 2016 election that ushered in a meaner, more divided US and the barflies and booze hounds who've haunted the place for years represent a microcosm of misfit americana a community who found a home away from home in the bar's grungy interior now facing an uncertain future and they've they've documentary filmmakers from the past so okay great can't wait play all right so then i finish it i think i finish reading the rest of the blurb except none of them are real no I, i got hoodwinked it wasn't even in vegas it was new orleans where they shot it they're all just actors because Jesse was like so upsetting. Jesse's like, God, they're good at pretending the cameras aren't there, or, or you know, ignoring them. And I'm like, I felt like I was watching. Uh, this has happened so often. I get, oh my god, I feel like that should be illegal. It's like the equivalent of watching an entire film and then someone coming at the end and going, and that was all a dream. <laughs> yeah, you go, what? I- I got War of the Worlds. I mean, it, it's happened before. <laughs> I was reading a Merv Hughes book and he was like, it was full of anecdotes. I was like, whoa, what an amazing life. And at the end, is like talking about playing golf with Don Bradman and Don Bradman made a really funny joke. And then you get to the end, it's like, and if you believed any of this, you're an idiot. I'm like, oh, my God. No. <laughs> Did he actually do that? Yeah, he oh does. God. How it ends. I got sucked in. Then I was watching. Um, it's so called. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think so. And then it, uh, this story, anyway, it's like Dean Jones, it's Murph Hughes. They're both using this made up story on their sportsman's nights. Then <laughs> I was watching. <laughs> What are was, they, breakfast radio hosts? <laughs> I was watching, um, uh, there was a, that theatre, the, there was a show on the West End. I think it came to Melbourne, but One Man, Two Governors. James Corden played the lead role in it at one point. Very famous farce. Anyway, you're watching it and they drag up people from the audience and it's like, I can't believe the audience member is doing this. It's amazing. People are howling with laughter at what this audience member is being put through. Okay, at the end, audience member comes out in a row, big theatrical bow, stooge! No! So 
I'm just <laughs> I, I'm watching Penn and Tell okay, don't this is what I've fooled. I'm watching Penn and Teller's full yeah. Penn and Teller recently. And yeah. there's this Italian magician on stage and he gets up someone from the audience and she's gorgeous. She's like dressed beautifully, like hourglass figure she performs with him she does this ring trick with him uh and i was like wow she's good like this she's so good she just performs so well with him and then when they say thank you at the end she goes <laughs> she's like thank you very much and she also has this really thick italian accent and i was like no oh why i know magicians lie but it was too much for me to handle i think i might be this uh terrible combination of way too cynical and way too gullible at different (laughs) times. (laughs) Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Professor Felice Jacker is an international expert in nutritional psychiatry whose current research focuses on the links between diet and mental, brain and gut health. She's co-authored a new educational illustrated book titled There's a Zoo in My Poo, designed to give kids the knowledge and power to make healthy choices. And to tell us about the release that's just been dropped, the professor joins us on the line now. Felice, welcome to Breakfasters. Good day. Uh, what, what in your studies has compelled you to pen there's a zoo in my poo? Well, it's not so much. Well, the studies are important, um, but the context is, I think, more important. So unhealthy diets now the leading cause of illness and early death around the world, and mental disorders account for the leading global burden of disability, particularly common mental disorders, depression and anxiety. And the fact that the two things are linked, and we know this from the, the research that we've led, but also now from many, many other countries all around the world, gives us opportunities to think about prevention and new strategies for treatment. And we think that the gut is a really key part of um, this story, um, linking diet to mental and brain health. And we wanted to create something that was an educational tool that kids would really respond to and then through them, hopefully, their, their parents and their teachers to give this very concrete knowledge about, you know, how what you stick in your gob has an impact on the rest of your body and your brain and something very immediate, something very accessible. Mm. Well, the, the gut is so hot right now. What do you um have you have you what do you think about the trend and you, do you do you enjoy the increased appreciation of the gut's role in uh, in our overall health? Look, it's really fascinating. It's a bit akin to um, you know the discovery of um, subatomic particles and the way that transformed physics. You know, it's it's absolutely astounding to us. We've I think we've known for a very long time that we're covered with trillions and trillions of bacteria and they're in us and on us. But it's only very recently that we've started to appreciate that they play such an important role in our health. And the fact that you can modify your gut um, and its function very readily and within hours by modifying your diet gives you then a very concrete way in which you can think about improving your health. Mm. And the fact also that there's so many hundreds, if not thousands of scientists around the world now working to uncover this because it's really complex. I mean, you know, the the maths, the bioinformatics that you need to be able to understand uh, what's going on and the, the methods are, are changing all the time. So we're really only just at the start of our understanding. So the gut itself and the microbiota are extremely complex. But what we need to do to keep them happy is actually pretty simple. And that's a, a really nice thing. And, you know, that's what we tried to transmit in the book. Um, can tell us about the metaphor that it, that's extended uh, in the kids' book. So the the children are what a zookeeper. 
Yeah, that's right. That you, you know, everybody's a gut bacteria is a bit like a fingerprint. You know, it's unique to them. And um, while there's commonalities, you tend to, by the time you're three, have your own gut microbiota that stays relatively uh, stable throughout your life unless you have a really big insult, you know, whether that be a major illness, a gastrointestinal illness, or, you know, overuse of antibiotics, for example. But the thing about the bacteria is that they seem to be able to do lots of different things. So it's not so much what bacteria are there we're starting to understand, but actually what they do. And it's their function that you can change, apparently, by um, switching your diet. Um, so when when you eat food, uh, particularly plant fibres and polyphenols that are found in plants, our own enzymes can't break them down. So the gut bacteria, that's their job. But in the process of breaking them down, and this is a fermentation process, they release all of these molecules. And it's these molecules that run our immune system and influence our metabolism and body weight and our brain health, our stress response system. So, you know, you can make a big difference in a really short space of time. Mm. And how have you tried to make it accessible for kids? I mean, I noticed page 23, there's a, you've... Well, there's a stool chart. There's no other way to say it, is there? Every <laughs> <laughs> stool, stool chart. Yeah, you know, like in Europe, they have a little shelf. In many countries in Europe, they have a little shelf in the dunny so that you can have a have a look at your poo before you flush it away because we know that that's a really good indicator of health. And oh, it, not like a bookshelf, but no. just a, yeah. <laughs> it's like the poo lands on the shelf, you get yeah. up, have a good look, and then you can flush it away. Mm. So um, the Bristol stool chart is quite well known, and you can look at it and go, oh, I was a bit of a four this morning. That's good. Give myself a big gold star for the four. Um, And, of course, Rob's just done all the illustrations. So Rob is the crazy mad artist in our family, and uh, he's been drawing pictures for us since, you know, our children were really young. So I I sort of cornered him and said, right, we're doing this book together. So he's done all the mad little bugs. Well, Rob's actually with you. How how do you two go uh, working together? Oh, it's it's (laughs) – it's a nightmare. <laughs> no, no, it's been really fun. I mean, we've been together since we were 21, you know, back in the 80s. and um, But we've never worked together, you know, and usually our interests and our what we do don't converge. You know, Rob's a, a muso as well as being a teacher and um, I'm a scientist. So being able to do something together is really fun and really exciting. Uh, was it fun coming up with all fecal-related poems? I mean, uh, um, they kind of sneak up on you, don't you? I'll just read one. Uh, if every day junk food comes your way and that's what goes into your tummy, bad bugs will thrive, good bugs will die, and your poo will be too hard or runny. They really... <laughs> well, that, you can blame him for them. All the rhymes were robs. <laughs> so, that, I you know, I, I just do all the, you know, the dumb, boring, unintellectual stuff of kind of, you know... <laughs> Cartooning and uh, and really bad Dr. Zeus rhymes. <laughs> Anyone can do it. It's not that hard. <laughs> song lyrics now that you've used. I don't want to talk about any of my song lyrics. They were just a dreadfully bad, you know, awful teenage, terrible things. Uh, and there's recipes as well. Yeah, yeah. So I had, I had quite a bit of fun with those. I actually use make those recipes, but I just gave them new names. So Zupu Stew, uh, Better Bog Burgers. And someone actually messaged me with a photo on Instagram the other day and they, they'd made Zupu Stew and Better Bog Burgers and I said, oh, you'll be pooing like a champion. <laughs> uh, I think there's Farty Toast, which is basically just beans on toast, um, Bug Breakfast. So that was fun. And they're just designed to be really easy for kids to make. But um mm. 
You know, the thing about kids is they're smarter than you give them credit for. And I know previous research that I've led um, showed, uh, in which is similar to what we've seen in the animal studies as well, that the quality of your diet is really intrinsically linked to the, the hippocampus. This is part of your brain that is very important for learning and memory, but also mood and emotional regulation. And it's the one area of your brain that actually grows new neurons throughout life. So it shrinks and grows depending on what's going on. And people with healthier diets, um, according to our research and then more research that's followed on from there, have larger hippocampi. They, they, you know, they can think and learn and everything better because of what they're putting in their mouth. Uh, if we, you know, um, take the evidence from the animal studies and also from the human studies, and this gave rise to lots of big headlines around the world. And one of them was junk food shrinks your brain. And we got lots of reports of people saying, "Oh, my kids are telling me." Mum, you know, don't get those chips because junk food shrinks your brain. And similarly, we've had lots of people messaging us and saying, you know, my three-year-old or my five-year-old is saying things like, oh, mum, I, I, I'm eating a banana. The bugs in my bum are going to be really happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> so it makes it concrete for them because if you say to a kid or even an adult, don't eat that, it's not good for you, it doesn't cut through you know, if it's something that might happen off in the future, like a heart attack, it doesn't, it's just not how humans work. You've mm. got concrete, you've got to make it something really salient and um, proximal. So, you know, what you eat today may influence how well you can do at school tomorrow or how happy you're going to feel. So yeah. making it concrete and immediate. Uh, well, the book's called There's a Zoo in My Poo with a testimonial from Dr. Michael Mosley. That must be pretty uh, you must be pretty chuffed. Michael's been brilliant. I, I, um, he, he's a big fan of the research that I've led, in particular the SMILES study, which was the first randomised controlled trial in the world to show that if you take people with clinical depression, moderate to severe clinical depression, and you help them to improve their diet, it has a really substantial impact on their mental health. And this is really exciting because we haven't had new treatments for depression in decades, and it's the leading cause of global disability. Um, so... He's been a really great proponent and he also gave me, because I've got a, an adult book called Brain Changer that I released last year and he, he did a quote for that as well. And um, I joined him on stage last year when he was out for his big national tour, you know, which was really fun. Um, and uh, so he's been a really good supporter and he's, a, he's also a really, really lovely bloke, he and his wife Claire, and they're doing some great stuff to get people to think about what they put in their mouths. All right. Well, there's a zoo in my poo by Professor Felice Jacker and husband and poo poet Rob Craw. Uh, it's out now by Pan McMillan. Thanks very much, guys. Love it. Melbourne's own Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast, The Best Bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.